Welcome to Jesus Has Left the Building, where we talk with people leading creative, outside the box, I mean outside the church building, ministries that inspire and engage us. Our vision is to unfold God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Our hope is that these stories will help you find ways to engage in your own communities as we work together for a more just and loving world. This is the Jesus Has Left the Building podcast, where ministers, people of faith, activists, and church leaders have left the building too, with Marta and Mandy. In this episode, we pull a question from Frank Schaefer's newest book, Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, and Be Happy. Halfway through the book, Frank asks, how is our model of career-first, family-second culture that provides few to no social services, thus leaving countless parents with no good choices working out for our children? That's found on page 162 of the book. We hope you ponder this question in the context of your own family, your own community, and even the church in the 21st century. Welcome, Frank, to Jesus Has Left the Building. We are so excited to have this conversation with you about your new book, your new challenging and also hope-filled book. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you for being so eloquent about it. And I hope that you are not the last reader who really likes the book because it's pretty new. (laughs) So I don't know how everybody's going to feel. You know, I'm waiting for someone to say, well, what's this old white guy have to say to a concern about children and quote unquote women. And I'd say, well, there's the problem. Because if you're thinking of children as a women's issue, right? you've got everything backward because guess what? In my male evolutionary history, I'm as much as a nurturer and caregiver as anyone else is. The problem is our society doesn't see it that way. So the the problem is not in the battle of the sexes. The problem is in the way our culture has constructed career versus not just family, everything. Mm -hmm. And so if we are defined by job title and the size of our paycheck, that's not a women's problem. That's a human problem because we've just deprived everyone of the joy of interpersonal relationships, which is all that will last. That's all that we've got. And that is what my book is about. So it has Mm -hmm. nothing to do with being pair bonded or straight or white or male has to do with how do we define success in a way that at the end of the day leaves us with a shot at experiencing joy that's it that's what the book is about so i i I am in opposition to the way our culture defines what it means to be human which i guess is about as basic as you can get Mm -hmm. so that's it's not about the striving it's about who we are So, you know, not to sound too Oprah-esque and maudlin, but I define it this way, and that is it really comes down to how do we define the word success for ourselves, for our culture, for our country, for the world, for the human race. And if we define it by the size of our paycheck, the title of our job, other titles, PhD, master's degree, divine orders, Mm -hmm. MD, whatever it might be, we're, we're going to see life one way. But if we define it by what we read in the eyes of those we love most who who know us best, and having been a young teenage father, I remember seeing fear in the eyes of children where I was presenting myself as a disciplinarian raised by fundamentalist Christians to be a bully, or as I put it in my book, to be an asshole by divine right, because God was on my side when I was at my worst. 
in terms of trying to get my wife to obey me, all this mm -hmm. crazy stuff I came away with. Mm -hmm. So I remember not seeing unconditional love and happiness and joy and trust in the eyes of the people who I loved, because I did love them, but mistreating, because I came from that background, trained to do that. And I contrast that with what I see every day in the eyes of my grandchildren that I've been doing childcare for now for 13 years, the three youngest ones on a daily mm. basis. And it's a completely different experience. And so it has nothing to do with what well, Jesus said, or this is the right thing to do morally. Mm -hmm. It's much more selfish than that. I know this sounds very obvious and sort of like, duh, so what, you know, tell us something original we don't know. The, the route to my joy in life is to make the people around me happy. Mm -hmm. Period. That's it. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean as a male to make my daughter-in-law, Becky, happy? She's starting her life out. She wants a career. I will do childcare for her. Mm -hmm. But do I get in return from all these silly people that say, oh, she's so lucky that you're doing that. Wow, you do that as if somehow I'm making a sacrifice. They simply don't get it. And that is that at this stage of my life with far less time ahead of me than behind me, can you name three things that I'd rather be doing than what I was doing yesterday with Nora over in my barn where she found a dead mouse? And for an hour, we did an elaborate mouse funeral, including the construction <laughs> of a coffin. She with my table saw. She nailed it all together because she helped me renovate the barn and she knows how to swing a hammer at age seven. She preached a very nice sermon. She sang a <laughs> song. And then she suddenly turned around and said, and for all you mice who can hear me, who are still alive, I have this to say. She had a good life. <laughs> and she's seven. So two lines, two lines are forming. And one is like I go on Oprah and this becomes a bestseller but I'm away from home and I miss the mouse funeral. A guy, as a guy pushing 70, there's nothing about making my book into a bestseller that I'm going to cling to ever. Whereas the memory of Nora's joy, because she has a grandfather who builds mouse coffins with her and what that gives her for the rest of her life and what it gives me on my deathbed to wax crazily maudlin mm -hmm. is beyond price. So it has nothing to do with, oh, they're so lucky to have you doing this. And and I, I also think it reflects a realization that life is in stages. So how ridiculous for young parents to think that they have to sort the rest of their career strategy out based on what the first four or five years of a young child's life is all about. That's going to go by like that. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden you're into a different stage. And so, you know, we've shortchanged ourselves. So I think the problem is not feminism and it's not capitalism. It's a, it's a philosophical definition of life as a matter of striving rather than living mm -hmm. and that's death mm -hmm. because it means the striving's meaningless too right i mean it, it 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 it's so crazy because it undermines the very striving itself if that's it mm -hmm. then really there's no point doing any of this stuff who cares mm -hmm. that's what the book is about i've kind of talked in a roundabout way but i i find that it i find that uh, i hope that you know we can change this and i am not a, so silly as to think my book will change it but i think it can be a little piece of it um agreed actually and you know i was thinking um and you're right the it is it is simple right but that's what's mandy and i were talking about we were talking um, about these four points from buckhannon and powell on page 131 yeah that um 
that he lifts, lists support equity, caring, and well-being. So simple, right? Like yeah. there's there's nothing more simple than that. Um, and yet, I don't even think um, neighborhood communities or church communities um, or even extended family communities like yeah. are even meeting those four simple basic um tenets of being in community together um and and what would it mean to actually just dive deep into what does support really look like in these places Mm -hmm. um what does equity really look like what is caring for each other what is well-being and instead of striving for um your like you said the the next paycheck or the next stewardship pledge or um the the counting of the next attendance of whatever um because you're so afraid that you know it's things are going to decline but what if we really stuck to those things i mean i think i mean that is in some ways what i was looking at in your entire book and i you know i think personally for me like growing up in dc um i think i have a little bit of a different like anxiety around Mm -hmm. it than, you know, maybe people who grew up in other parts of the country or world. Um, But it sounds like there's a couple of things that inspired you for this book. It sounds like um, the the moms and women in in your own personal family and um, trying to sort of make way um, in this culture. It sounds like COVID obviously was a big, huge one. but I'm also curious, and Roger can dive a little bit deep into this about, um, so while your upbringing was hard with the patriarchal model and mm. um, conservative theological background, um, I'm curious about that community that you grew up in and- and Exactly. Like it sounded amazing and yes, how- Yes, it was amazing. Is, and and how that's coming into of... play. Yeah. <laughs> And they did a lot of things right. I mean, if you look at the title of the book and know this is not a, a cheap way to repeat the title to get people to buy it because this actually has a point to it. Fall in love, have children, stay put, save the planet, be happy. You can take that as a sort of conservative model that might be Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints and how they want to operate with families or traditional Roman Catholics. But it's not the way it comes off in the book when I describe what I mean, because when you talk about models of caregiving and the Christian community I was raised in, Libri Fellowship, started by my parents in 1954, and I was born in 52, um, they got a lot of things in the theology that I would disagree with, and the kind of patriarchal tradition of Calvinism that came through as part of the package is something, of course, I abandoned with vigor and, and speak against. But if you look at the title of the book, Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy, and you look at the way my book interprets it, that's the secret to why the community was successful because fall in love was not just a notion of romantic love, although that's included. It is fall in love with love as the prime motivating prime directive. The reason this worked in the Christian community is not because it fits with Jesus's teaching, it fits with our evolutionary ancestral history because the only reason uh, we're all four sitting here today talking is because someone in our ancestral background 10,000, 50,000, 150,000 years ago got cared for when they were the stranger, when they were a child left by a trail because the mother had been killed by a 
a, a wolf or a, a marauding tribe, somebody picked up somebody and cared for them, or you were none of us would be here because everybody has that in their story. Okay, so fall in love with love itself. Somebody did more than just feed us, our ancestors, they nurtured them in the way of being human, which was to reach out to other humans and care because it, the evolution it gives us this as a matter of survival. The only reason Jesus's words ever resonated is because evolution already primed the pump. So that we basically what he was teaching us was a survival course based on evolutionary neuropsychology. Have children, Marta, you've just said nice things about my book today. Okay, right now you are lit quite literally my mother because mothers take drawings, children do, and they put them on the refrigerator with a magnet and they're proud of their child. You are giving me an author trying to tell people about the last six years of my work this drawing took me six years. And instead of ignoring it, you're giving me a little space to shine for a second. You're letting me be seen as I wish people would see me for a minute. That's what mothers do. You are my mother right now, literally, as much as any mother ever has been to me because you're my caregiver. So when I say have children, I'm talking about you with this podcast, having me as your child today and reaching out to me with love because you have fallen in love with love, so you're, you're kind. Stay put is the function of fall in love and have children because you're not wandering around looking for a better deal. Why would you leave the community you're in and the roots you have? I'm not against moving if you need to move, but why are you moving to the West Coast to do this startup just so you can make more money when all the people you love are attached to are in your community? Where, when will you invest in a place unconditionally and stick with the program not to do the next fancy cool thing, but to do the thing that's good for the community. Well, that's a result of having, having children in the sense that everyone is our child, we are all caregivers. How, how does that save the planet? Because obviously, you know, if you look at the a scene on a beach some summer, the, the mother sitting there with a child breastfeeding the baby, tending the two toddlers her neighbor has left with her so she can go to work, is not the problem on the beach. It's the five guys on jet skis burning up the environment on a useless product, doing no good to anyone, sustaining a corporate model of life that's all about the bottom line and could give a shit that half the rainforest got torn down to make the leather seats. So it's by virtue of, of having those priorities, it extends to that. And be happy is maybe the wrong choice of words because there's a lot about doing good things in life that is not about happiness, but it's about an, an, a joy that comes with knowing that your life has purpose. Mm -hmm. So that's what my community was. So when I got Jeannie pregnant mm -hmm. at 17 and 18, okay, I was in this evangelical community that provided us with a free apartment, all medical care, a stipend to live on, three meals a day eaten in the communal dining room so we didn't even have to cook, three sisters down the road in the work, plus endless workers and other helpers to babysit and care for our, our kids. That's amazing. I mean, basically we had moved to a socialist paradise plus for any young couple. Right. Jeannie and I never would have, I mean, we've been married 52 years now. We wouldn't have gotten into two years. We would never have gotten past the six month mark if there hadn't been all that sustaining support for a couple of teenagers with a baby. Right. So, so essentially, I have experienced the worst of evangelical Christianity that there is in, in being part of the problem today, carrying forward into the Trump years, because we helped weld 
the evangelical anti-abortion movement deeply in embed it within the Republican Party, which has led to everything that's happened. But I've also seen the best of what happens when people actually live according to fall in love, have children, stay put, save the planet, be happy. And they didn't put it that way. And they they and the reason they did it is real simple. It works. And so people from all over the world came to Libri and and quote found Christ. And they didn't find Christ because of the harsh Calvinist theology. They found Christ, so to speak, because my parents were actually better people than their theology. Right. Because they they lived as if they had read chunks of this book and treated gay people and black people and lesbian couples that I talk about in the book and others mm -hmm. with great dignity and kindness in a way that a lot of evangelicals weren't. So it's interesting because as I look back on that background, I have so much to be thankful for in what my parents believed. I think they were doing it for the wrong reason because they thought that God would judge them if they didn't and that this is what Jesus wanted them to do. I have a very different point of view. And that is that if you want to find joy in life, the first prerequisite, I don't mean intellectually, you've got to study and do all this stuff, but at the very minimum, you have to live within reality. Okay, so, so you can't be in a fantasy world as to what makes your partner happy, you know, and, and do that all the time and expect her or they or him to be happy because you're living in a fantasy world. That's not what really makes them happy. So reality is a prerequisite. And, you know, one base reality is the science that I studied for this book basically can be summed up like this. There were years of evolutionary studies that left people with the impression that it was the survival of the fittest. But all the modern studies into neuropsychology says, no, 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 never was. We're only here because of the survival of the friendliest. It's always been about sharing a community or we're all dead. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's, that's the, the modern cutting edge of everything that I refer to in the book. The one thing that binds it together is this idea of the survival of the friendliest. Well. You know, holy crap, if that's what evolutionary teaches us is reality, no wonder when Jesus comes along and says wise things that fit with that, it resonates to the point that you have a 2,000-year-old institution called the church that rises mm -hmm. out of it because we want to somehow institutionalize and codify what works, okay? That's why we go 55 miles an hour instead of 155 miles an hour. It's because the survival of the friendliest, it's a kind act to not kill everybody on the freeways, just a lot of people. It's mm -hmm. kindness. It's the survival, not of the fittest, but of the friendliest. You, you modify, mm -hmm. you have laws. So it's a kind of horse thing. And coming out of an evangelical background, the kind of idea that my father always had about presuppositional philosophy and how it shaped culture was that, you know, these things work, therefore they are true. And I'd put it the other way around. And that is, they work. Christianity when it teaches certain things because it was already true and people were living by that and so they looked for ways to codify it whether it was laws government feminist movements Jesus mm -hmm. Christianity Hinduism Buddhism whatever the the thing is it's trying to formalize something that is an actual survival tactic it's not mm. can't be left to chance or we will all die so we make laws we make churches we make religions we say Jesus had is the son of God because look at all this great stuff he said it must be God well, it looks like God because God, you know, in this sense is evolution and evolution mm -hmm. is merciless. It teaches mm -hmm. a lesson and it says, if you do not do this, you will, in the day thou mm -hmm. eatest thereof, thou, you will die. And evolution mm -hmm. has exactly the same message. And we are mm -hmm. now dying because we're dying spiritually, literally, physically, and we're killing the planet because we are, we are an acquisitive consumerist bunch of idiots 
who have thrown away the candy, we're eating the wrapper. So it's not a feminist issue. It's not a male issue. It's not right. a non-binary issue. That's a human issue. So enough of my sermon, but that's Amen. No, that's great. That is great. Hey, so Frank, can you paint a really quick picture about, um, you know, I, I know about the communal aspect of your upbringing and your dad was an artist or your mom was an artist, I think. And Mother. then, um, but then somehow there's a shift and you guys are like doing all this anti-abortion stuff. So can you paint a picture about that transition and how you were part of that religious right and, and moving that agenda yeah. forward? And then like, if you could go back and embody your 20 year old personhood or 25 year old, whatever you were, and um, <clears throat> just paint a picture for them of why they're on the wrong track what would you say? So can well, you paint a picture about yeah, how you yeah. got into the religious right? Can you paint a picture about what you would say if you could time travel and um, dive into your old body? And Yeah. I think part of the, the thing is the way real life works out, as you all know, is a series of serendipitous or unfortunate coincidences. So, you know, it wasn't like the religious right was sitting there and we were saying, hmm, that looks pretty good. Let's join. You know, we nobody made that decision. And if anybody had played it out for 40 years and seen the storming of the Capitol and had been told what you guys are getting into almost casually at this point as an offshoot of this ministry, one incremental step at a time, like the frog in the water and the temperatures turned up and he boils to death and never knows he's being cooked. Someday, you know, should you fast forward the clock, you're going to bitterly regret this. There wasn't anybody around to say that. But the, the way it basically unfolded was like this, and that is dad had been writing books like The God Who Is There and Escape From Reason, where you might say, well, he has an evangelical point of view, but you wouldn't even peg him as of the left or right. You would say, if anything, he's a little bit of the left because he's anti-bourgeois, he's anti-capitalism in some ways, he's talking about the environment, he's talking about middle-class values being bankrupt, he's siding with the hippies. He's talking mm. about how the beats and the hippies are the only people telling the truth right now because middle-class American bourgeois culture, these are words he's using. He sounds like a leftist. He's, he's making a critique of all this. Yeah. And his solution is to center your life around biblical Christianity, but it's on the sharing and caring side of things, you know, the merciful God and so on. And mostly what he's interested in is the philosophy and the theology as it impacts the culture, looking for answers for young people, et cetera, et cetera. So then a, a, an evangelical movie producer, Billy Zioli comes to Labrie in the middle of all this and starts coming to dad sort of like a disciple as did Billy Graham and all sorts of other people who were very influential in the late sixties and early seventies. And the reason they showed up is because dad's quote, apologetic method was to put it in evangelical terms, bearing fruit, i.e. British rock and roll people and druggies and girls with unwanted pregnancies were showing up and accepting Jesus in ways they were never doing at anybody else's evangelistic mm. outreach. It was working. How is Francis, how are Francis Nita Schaefer doing what no one else is doing? There's the whole generation gap. Nobody wants to know about this. 
you know, Jack Sparks shows up on the cover of Life magazine, baptizing people in swimming pools and the Jesus movement is born in San Francisco. They interview him. Why are you here? I'm here because of Francis Schaeffer. What? Who, who's this guy? So all of it starts unrolling and we have, um, you know, become very attractive. Well, one of the people who shows up is Billy Zioli from Gospel Films. Uh, and he says, hey, we rent, we make movies for church rental back in the day of 16 millimeter film. You had a projector in the church, you showed it at night and school, Christian school rental and so on. This is even pre-VHS cassettes. How about we put some of Francis's thinking on film and give him a wider audience? And out of that came How Should We Then Live, which was a book about art, culture and philosophy, very much in line with what dad was doing. But sort of going to the next step of cultural analysis, saying, you know, the Renaissance and the Enlightenment brought bad humanistic elements into what otherwise was a Christ-centered civilization. We began to drift away from the biblical roots of American democracy and so on and so on. And in that very analysis, Dad sort of went more to the right. And then in the last two episodes, Roe v. Wade came along and he used the Roe and abortion as his prime example of straying from the kind of biblical covenantal theology, not because of the issue of abortion itself, but because of the judicial overreach of the court and what he regarded was an unconstitutional usurpation of power. Okay, then C. Everett Koop, who was surgeon in chief at Philadelphia Children's Hospital, saw the films, loved it because he was ardently anti-abortion based on his own medical practice of doing surgery on a lot of neonatal intensive care patients right out of the womb, often the age of a late-term abortion. He had a gut reaction. He was a very reformed Calvinistic person. And at the same time, a very kind, compassionate man. He was sort of pro-life on the gut. He came and that coincided with me now having two children in my early 20s, no, no way to earn my living. And I had been the producer of the first series, wound up directing it. And the reason for that was because um, I needed work and I wanted more work and I wanted to get into the movie business and I was an artist and it was like, well, what are we going to make next? So my greed, my ambition to stay in the movie business, my father's desire to help me, we looked for a second project. And the second project turned out to be whatever happened to the human race, which most American historians quote unquote credit with talking many evangelical leaders who at that time were either ambivalent and or like Billy Graham, pro-choice, Dr. Criswell of the Southern Baptist Convention, pro-choice, the editorial board of Christianity Today magazine, pro-choice at the time of Roe v. Wade, talking about why abortion should be legal. And first of all, we changed their minds and then of course it went public and the rest is history. So it's a weird, uh, it's a weird thing that so much hinged at one point on an evangelist with a huge worldwide following for philosophy and theology and art history and culture and interpreting the Bible for young people in an open house intentional community suddenly becomes the voice that is opposed by most other evangelical leaders who said this is a Roman Catholic issue it's not our issue it's never been our issue. Him and his talkative son that would be me go around the country with this film series playing to empty house, empty uh, theaters where we had filled them before uh, when we came with How Should We Then Live because people wanted the art and culture but not the abortion. In the end, we talked a lot of people into something they hadn't thought about before. And then what happened is, is that 
Republican leaders like Jack Kemp and, and Ronald Reagan and others saw that uh, this was going to play well. They had a, a big fiery issue. Evangelical leaders who were flakes like Pat Robertson and Dr. Dobson, folks on the family saw this as a huge fundraising opportunity and the die was cast and it was then out of our hands. We had started something that we were never gonna be able to finish. And within a couple of years, dad wrote uh, a Christian manifesto, which said, if we can't overturn abortion with legal means, we can, we can overthrow the state in the sense that anything that was illicit to overthrow Hitler would be illicit to overthrow the US government if we can't turn it around by other means. And lo and behold, a couple guys who had come to Libri wind up shooting an abortion doctor uh, and bombing clinics and all the rest of it. And so the whole thing just skids off the rails. But its beginning was not, hey, let's start this thing called the religious right. Mm -hmm. And it ended up in someone totally, totally different. What was the motivation for dad to go so far off the rails in the last six, seven, eight years of his life? First of all, he's battling cancer. Secondly, he had early fundamentalist beginnings. He left and sort of returned to it in his older age. He has a very ambitious son, nepotistic sidekick. That's me pushing him in a, in a really terrible direction. Um, I'm a true believer. I've had this teenage pregnancy and we didn't abort our daughter. So why should anybody else kill their babies? unfair because I'm living in a socialist paradise mm -hmm. with total support that even Scandinavian right. countries today don't offer. So completely crazy. Right. Yeah. Well, if they had a free apartment, all medical care, 20 babysitters, free meals, a place to live for five years, paid yeah, income, not? maybe they would have be able to keep their children too. So, you know, a lie-based pro-life position on my side, all the stupidity and certainty of youth so, you know, why are so many people who supported the Communist Party during the Stalinist era ashamed of themselves now? Well, they were 20 years old in New York and they didn't know any better. Right. Same right. kind of thing. So, right. you know, that's a long answer, but that's the most truthful I can give it to you. That's I appreciate it, Frank. Yeah. I appreciate you know, it so much. Oh, it's, and by the way, the book has a lot of that in it in the sense that my editor, uh, Christine Belaris at HCI Press said, look, there's enough about you in this book, so people are going to have to know more. I said, oh, come on, let me turn the page. I've written about that. I want to talk about loving families and children. She said, no, you can't get off the hook. You have to tell them who you are. So, of course, I wrote a new introduction to the book, and then that thread follows, because the book, in a sense, is not written from a position of strength of, hey, do what I did. It's written from a position of weakness. I completely screwed everything up. Here's what I learned from it. I'm pushing 70, you know, I'm going to pop off soon. Okay, folks, you know, I've left some markers on the trail. Maybe you can learn something because mm -hmm. I wish, you know, in other words, I've written the book from a position of weakness, learning, failure, and repentance. Yes. So my, this book doesn't come from a place of, hey, I did all this great stuff. No, 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 no. I did all this terrible stuff. And yet here I found, you know, it, something worthwhile. And if yes. I can get there, maybe other people can. Mm -hmm. And that's I, I love your story. Um, one of the things that I hear, Frank, in, in your story, both your personal story and I think also in the book, like connecting into this um, idea that we have in this podcast of um, kind of liberating Jesus from mm. the confines of, of the structure of the church and the, the boundaries of the church um, is this commitment to constant learning and growing and I think when you, it sounds like when you were a younger person, 
um, you had a commitment to just keep doing the thing that was mm. supposed to work, right? right? And and you continued to do those things for a long time until it went off the rails. Mm. And um, for us in um, in the church, the global church, I think there are some of those moments happening now, right? Where we, um, the things that we have always been doing that have seemed to work sometimes um, aren't always working anymore. But we as the church can be so committed to following the pattern to, to taking the next step that we're supposed to, this, this thing that has been given to us that we've inherited. Um, and I just wonder like, what, what gave you the courage or the, I don't know what the word is, to step outside of the norm of the, this is what I'm supposed to do mm-hmm. to, um, to, you know, the way we put it, get outside of, the church um to step out of that way and do something Turn over different the tables yeah yeah i mean it, it for me it's a bit of an odd story and of course when you look back you don't know and i'll preface this by saying this and that is you know one has regrets i have many um on the other hand i'm glad i'm sitting here talking with you three this afternoon so there's a paradox there because if you're happy in this moment, you couldn't have gotten to this moment anyway, except the path you took. And, and, and if that path includes some horror, it's still true. You can't get here from there except through this path. So the regret is not a regret in the sense of saying, I wish it had turned out differently. It's a regret saying along the way, what harm and damage did I do to individuals with names and faces and lives who are not, were not improved because they met me or knew me or met people who were influenced by us. So that's sort of big, big strokes. But the smaller story, the individual personal story out of which this book comes is that I broke all the rules of fall in love, have children, stay put, save the planet, be happy. I did the opposite. Okay, so I was away six months of the year with the kids doing my nepotistic sidekick business or the B-movie business trying to earn a living. Um, You know, I fell in love with self-love and not in the healthy kind, but like the striving kind of I want to be something, be somebody. I did not stay put. You know, I was I did actually physically. Jeannie and I lived in the same house 42 years, but I was chasing all this other stuff. And you know, was very much a consumer uh, in, uh, of, of my own ego in the sense that I had these ideas of, of, you know, things I wanted to do and achievements I wanted to have and so forth. So I had, I did not live what I'm talking about here for a good chunk of time. The result was disastrous. So if you ask why I changed, and again, I, I don't want to be maudlin and, and simplistic here. It's because I really love Jeannie enough to analyze why it was that I was screwing up her life and when i finally concluded that the only way to be happy was to make the person i loved happy which was a huge change for me because other you know my former self always thought the way to be happy was to make the person i love more like me so she agrees with everything i do and goes for it change her and when I, finally, when I finally figured this isn't working and I'm going to lose this, 
I love these children. I love this woman. And I'm going, this whole thing, I'm demolishing the world I love because I'm sticking with a program that says they should change for me rather than I'll change for them. I started really looking at, you might call the chemistry of self-destruction. And for me, it was being tied into chasing all this crap that I was following in the evangelical world of big time American Christianity. It is absolute poison, not just to me, but it was poison to my marriage. It was poison to my parenthood. It was poison to everything that I had been raised to believe. Weirdly comparing it to the open community before it became politicized and how it treated people and so forth. So essentially, you know, my, the change for me came out of desperation. It was like, okay, I'll try this. You know, everything else has failed. Try to, let's try kindness. Everything else has failed. Let's try repentance. Let's try take the blame with no caveat. Not I'm sorry if I've hurt your feelings, just I'm sorry. So when I began to think that way, it didn't fix everything overnight, but there was a glimmer and I gave Jeannie enough of a glimmer. So she, in her stubbornness, stuck with the program because her chemotherapy of, you know, ordinary decent human being serum was starting to work. And I love my kids enough so that I changed the way I was behaving with them. It was not perfect overnight. You know, my philosophical, political, religious, spiritual change came about for highly personal reasons. And those personal reasons were that I loved Jeannie and I love my children more than I was addicted to the what I thought I believed. And one, so they started outweighing things before I looked at the logic of it and said, well, you know, there was a reason this wasn't working. Before that, it was just a very personal thing. So, you know, the story I tell in this book and the story of my own life are one and the same. And that is, um, you know, make, making the people you love happy and content and willing to trust you really is the only road that I have found that makes me joyful. Everything else is nonsense. So, you know, if you ask me, why do I do all the cooking? Well, it's a hobby of mine. But the other thing is, is that, you know, I'm a really good cook and I have one client like Tom Hagen in The Godfather who has the Vito Corleone is one client. Jeannie has a personal chef. I'm a really good cook. I don't cook for myself when she's away and doing things. I have no interest in it. It's really funny. It's not any kind of selflessness. It's just ego. If I can't, if I can't pull her chair out and seat her at something I've cooked for her, it literally doesn't mean anything for me. I mean, that you know, um, make it... I, she, she, the relationship with her is, is like an artwork. I'm not interested in paint, you know, dabbling in somebody else's painting. I'm, I want to work on the paintings I'm doing. I'm not saying this is ego free, but the relationship that Jeannie and I, our children and my grandchildren have is a project to me in which my ego is bound up the way it used to be, say, trying to make it in big time something or whatever. And, you know, when Jeannie's happy, I'm happy. When she has joy, I have joy. And it's not selfless. It's what I would call it, you know, this is informed selfishness actually turns into altruism. 
you have to be really, really stupid to be selfish and mean. Really stupid. And if you're if you're halfway smart and you keep doing that and it keeps blowing up in your face and you change your tune and you're with someone worthy and wonderful, um, it's like you know, watering the seeds in the garden, man. It just starts growing beautifully. The sun comes out, it's like, okay, I get it. So after that, you realize you have a lifetime of bad habits to undo. That's different. So, you know, you still get angry, you still do stupid things, but it starts going in the other direction. And that's what this book comes out of. And it's like, okay, how like in a board game, could you roll the dice and go from this square, you know, when you hit the thing and you suddenly go further up the board without having to do every damn square and unlearn everything. Maybe someone can get a better bite at this apple to begin with and wind up where it took me the better part of 70 years to get. And, you know, they, I mean, you know, let's take a really simple thing in, in, in marriage of who does housework, okay? There's the sort of contractual thing of sharing tasks. And then there's the more organic thing of just asking yourself what makes the person I'm with happy. Jeannie does all our taxes and finances and estate planning and everything that people do she does all, you know, what people think of as the important stuff because I'm terrible at it and it makes me very unhappy. I do all the cooking and all the dishes. And I do most of the childcare for the grandchildren now because Jeannie did a lot of that when she had the little ones of her own. And now she's doing other stuff because that makes her happy. I mean, it's really simple. And we didn't work it out because we sat down and said, okay, what's fair and how are we going to organize this the way a younger couple does? We just fell into it naturally because both of us in the last, you know, 20 years or so of our life together, we really want to make each other happy. So Jeannie knows that anything that looks like homework to me on paper for a kid that ran away from school drives me crazy. So she doesn't even tell me how much money we have in the bank. I literally had her go with my son one time and show him where all our shit is because if something happened to her, I'm like the white, the proverbial wife in the 1950s relationship who doesn't even know where the checkbook is. That's literally me. But on the other hand, she hasn't cooked a meal in the kitchen for 20 years, except when she feels like baking something. And I do the dishes and I clean up and I clean up when she does do something. And it's not out of some sense of duty of shared housework because I read a feminist something or other. It's because I want to make Jeannie happy. Duh. That was my that was one of my favorite stories in your book was the getting up early in the morning to yeah. get those dishes done before she got up so she could get and and you had this one line of like um sarcasm which was hilarious like i can i can stop my five minutes of very important writing work yeah. to um to get the d dishes done um which was amazing and 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 it also came that message came across of like like you're not doing this because this is feminist work and this is just what you do in this modern contemporary age you yeah. do this simply because it's kind it's loving it's yeah. it you know and i just i so appreciated and roger also knows how much the dishes mean to me well hey and i build mouse coffins with nora because her eyes sparkle you got a problem right. with that i mean would anybody right. you know i love how every, everybody has these big reasons for stuff how about just it made her happy Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, why do I kiss Jeannie? Because it makes her happy. And that makes mm -hmm. me happy. Why do I say I love you? Because she says I love you. I mean, these, this is not difficult. What's difficult is the first 20 years of our marriage where 
you know, all my instincts are wrong. Everything I think about male female relationships is upside down. You know, I mean, I'll give you some stuff that where I, this is just me spouting off here. Women are better leaders than men, period. That's it. No question. You know, if you looked at who's committing all the crimes, who rapes, who kills, who serial kills, who does all this stuff that upside down our culture, you know, as far as I'm concerned, if every woman could have a gun, no problem. It's men shouldn't have guns. I mean, really, if you look at it, you know, the, mm -hmm, you, mm -hmm. you know, I think on a, on a kind of a, of, an, of a massive cultural level, my statement in the book that women make better leaders can be borne out. My statement page in the 116. Book, yeah, page 116, whatever, you know better than me. Um, I'm, these aren't fanciful things that I'm saying to, you know, having because I, it fits in with something. It's because I really believe what I say in the book, which is feminism is an evolutionary step, like losing our tails or getting coming out of the trees and marching out of Africa together. You know, I really believe this. I think we've got it backwards. And I think men have wonderful roles to play. But I think that in as time goes on through history, men are going to have to redefine themselves and see themselves first as equal partners with women and then do what I do in my household and be smart enough to let your, run, your wife basically run everything that, that uh, you know, used to be thought of as the sort of male purview. You know, it's why I have a woman doctor and a woman lawyer. It has nothing to do with feminism. It's because I want to be treated by a doctor who doesn't mind being late for the next appointment because she'll take time talking to me when I have some question. I mean, mm -hmm. This all goes with the territory. So for, for me, the passage from where I was to where I'm at now is that it's one of not just personal growth, it's just a reality. It's that this is how the world actually works. And we're we're in a stepping state, we're in a stepping stone point now where you know people are pushing back with religious fundamentalism across the globe and so forth and so on. But I'm quite hopeful because I think female leadership is emerging. And part of this, part of facilitating that is men not doing childcare because they have some duty, but because if you want to be in a happy relationship, keep the person you're with happy, let her realize her potential and step out, period. What's your problem with that? And life is long and we can take turns doing things and she can ha have her career and you can have yours, but you've got to swap off and you maybe live a little lower below the means that you've been aspiring to. And, and you, and, and you know, my philosophy is you can have it all, but not at the same time. See, this is where you, you mm -hmm. can, you know, have it all doesn't work if you want to have it all at the same time. But mm -hmm. if you're willing to take turns, if you're willing to swap off, if you're willing to accommodate, if you're willing to make each other happy, it may not be exactly as you planned it, but you can have it. It's possible. But it has to, it takes, it takes two to tango. It takes a community. It always has. Women have never been able to raise children by themselves. Of right. course not. It does take use, a village. You use the word cooperative a lot, mm. and I and I love I love that. Okay, here's one last question. Um, and this, you know, this question is coming out of um, how the pandemic has changed the lives of families, mm. and how do you think this book can help them? Well, I think it can help everybody, and I mean everybody, non-binary people, people like my son Francis, who's a teacher, he's single, he's not going to get married probably. My guess is, is he will never have a child. He doesn't want children. He's a tremendous teacher. He cooks lunch for his kids on the weekends so he can tutor them. Parents get tears in their eyes when they tell me about the way he's changed their kids' lives. 
um, you know, he's as much of a parent as I am. It helps everybody because if your priorities in life, your idea of success begins to align with reality, you will be happier. You know, let me give you a no-brainer example. If your idea of success is putting your head down and charging headlong into brick walls, which you have dismissed as fantasy, but are actually there, you will get a series of concussions and then you will die. If your idea of success is pursuing career at the expense of everything that matters, okay, so here's an apocryphal tale. You're in high school, you fall in love. Everybody tells you you're too young. You're in college, you still, you go, you travel long distance to see this guy or this girl. It could be, you know, any relationship. People are telling you, we'll finish college first. You finish college, now they're saying get a master's degree. You wake up one morning and you're getting in vitro fertilization. You spent $180,000 for one pregnancy when you're 47. You're the age grandmothers genetically and evolutionary are, are geared to be. The fertility clock was ignored. Biology was ignored. And this applies if that's your partner as much as it does to a woman. And now the grandparent that would have been there to help you with that child is either dead or 80. You're caring for them. Problem is they've moved to Orlando for in a community that is a gated community for people 55 and over. Your kids are in a daycare center because now you're full bore career tilt. And if you take even the paternity leave your stingy company allows you to have as a man, your career suffers. Excuse me, the whole picture is wrong. It's a disaster. It's a disaster. So my way the book can help people at every stage of this disaster is not that they can't recreate the wasted time or the having a kid later than they would have had if they'd thought about it better, whatever it may be. But they can do what I did. And that is you pick the pieces up, you look where you are and you say, okay, but from here on out, I'm gonna live according to a different plan of what success is to me. And all of a sudden it takes the burden off you because you don't have to be the hot glass ceiling smashing woman in your office. You don't have to be the guy headed to be the CEO because you never take time off and you work all weekend. You can take a deep breath and just say, I'm you know, sorry for the language, fuck it, I'm done here. And you know, if I have to take another job or stay home for a year or lose all the things that I worked so hard to do and people are sort of making, you know, saying, he, well, he's a loser. He was, he was on his way, but then he suddenly got less serious, tough. So I'm hoping my book gives a lot of different people in a different stages of life, the courage to do what in their heart they actually know will make them happy mm -hmm. because it conforms to the reality of who you evolved to be. And this works for Christians too, because who you evolve to be is, is, is the kind of person that Christ describes, because in my book, evolution set him up for success by making us that way anyway. And he called us back, not to our better selves, but to our true nature. And so it, it, it works, you know, however you come at that sort of belief system. But I think the book helps you basically look at the world and say, you know what, screw it. I'm going to, I, I'm getting, thank you, I'm done here. I'm getting off this train and uh, I'm taking that full two years with my toddler and I don't care if I come back to the job and I've suffered. Um, and, or, you know what? My wife's benefits are enough. I'm staying home so she can go out and excel because guess what? She really wants to be a surgeon a lot more than I wanna be a lawyer. And if you're at the lower economic strata, you know what? I'm working two jobs as a single mom and, um, I'm gonna go out and look for help. And I'm going to move and go back to near where my aunt Emily lives because she was always kind to me and I'm gonna make it work. 
because I'm going to make that happen so that I get a little more time with my kid. So, you know, I really think that if we had more courage to buck the system, we just need more evidence of just how screwed up the system is. And I hope mm -hmm. my book provided that. Yeah. And I it, hope it I provides mean, it not a, and not just a how to, but look, here's a guy who did it. I mean, mm -hmm. who's the most unlikely character to talk about feminism as an evolutionary step forward than Frank Schaefer? Seriously. Mm -hmm. So, you know, right. you know what I'm saying? In other words, if, yes. if, if this asshole can, can, can do the dishes and get up earlier to do the dishes, humanity has a future. You're funny. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I really do. I, it's a good book. I love it. And I actually think, um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about how our church can do a book study with it in the winter. Um, so I'd love to participate, by the way, if you do a book oh. club thing, questions, I'm there, you know, and I okay. don't, with, without any limit, I'd love to do it either in person, but, or certainly this way anyway. Yeah, that would be awesome. That would be super great. I would love that. Well, thank you so much for your time. Um, you spent a nice full hour with us. Thank so you. Really and listen, to anybody it. who happens to hear this, um, if you want to get in touch with any questions or you have a book club. Oh, and by the way, I have a podcast in conversation with Frank Schaefer and I talk to interesting okay. people. So please note in Frank in conversation with Frank Schaefer as a link, as well as the Amazon link or whatever you want to give on yeah. the book. Yeah. The other thing is, is I'm happy to communicate with people by email. It's just my name with a middle initial A, Frank A. Schaefer at AOL.com. I have a Gmail account, but it's just for sort of business and stuff. But for people who want to talk to me about this book or whatever, or have a book club or have something they want to ask, uh, please feel free to email me. So hugs and kisses, everybody. Okay. Thank you, Thank so, you much. so much. Hand cleansed, masked kisses. Right, right. Yes. <laughs> thank you frank well, well listen you're awful you sweet to have me on and to say nice things about the book and i hope that some folks find out about it through you i think they will actually yeah no, for sure no worries on that end good well thank you so much and stay in touch with me okay okay, okay we will all right bye bye, bye. What a great conversation with the great Frank Schaefer. We know that there's no way to answer any of the questions that Frank poses. Our hope, as usual, is that this conversation inspires you to look differently at the church. Where is Jesus? We know he's left the building. And also, get Frank's book. It's really great. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Find us on Facebook at JHLTB and message us to learn how you can be part of this effort to tell stories, have conversations, build relationships, and follow Jesus out of the church and into the world. To support our work, search for Black Forest Community Church on Venmo to make a one-time donation or become a patron on our Patreon account at patreon.com JHLTB to commit monthly to this project. You'll get regular communications and updates about our stories. We give thanks to Black Forest Community Church and the Tributary Fund of the Rocky Mountain Conference of the United Church of Christ for their ongoing support. We could not do this without all who support Jesus has left the building.